It's midnight, the podcasting hour. blend well with the other myriad little shops along Christie Street. The cluttered window displays signs proclaiming knowledge of the esoteric and the occult. All fit snugly into the exotic lifestyle of New York's old East Village. However, had you by chance heeded the intriguing invitation on the door, it may still have done you little good. For mere curiosity seekers most often find the shop locked while those in genuine need ever seem to find it open and waiting. For this is an emporium of truth, and while to some it can be the gate to a world of realized dreams, to others it must ever remain a terrible doorway to nightmare. Hello, friends, it's PJ Frightful. That prologue was from the first issue of Doorway to Nightmare, written by David Michelini. Why did I introduce this episode with that quote? I guess I've had this story on my mind for a while. Really, since my last shopping trip to the big city. I went to a store called Steve's Weird Occult Shit. Steve has, as you'd expect, a lot of weird relics and dark artifacts, and more than one item that would be considered profane, unnatural by mainstream society. I went looking to buy an arm. Excuse me. An armoire. A new armoire. Gorgeous, too. Solid hardwood, cherry finish. The only problem with it was the smell. I complained, and Steve opened the doors to reveal a rotting head. (coughs) 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 Sorry. Head cheese. Rotting head cheese. Anyway, we tossed that out and wiped it down. When we were moving the armoire out into the truck, I noticed how bottom-heavy it was. We opened the drawer. It was full of sliced fingers. Ah, <clears throat> uh, sorry. Excuse me. Sliced fingerling potatoes. Very strange. But anyway, we cleaned it up, and now it's a great piece in my parlor. The only problem is I need to find a new rug. I rolled the last one around Steve's bloody corpse and dumped it in a river. Nine hundred dollars for an armoire. I told him that price was murder. Welcome to another nerve-rattling episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. I'm Ryan Daly, and I am thrilled to be joined on this episode by a good friend of the Fire & Water Network, Greg Arujo. How's it going, Greg? Oh, not bad. I hope it's a good evening for you. Oh, it always is when I get to talk to you. <laughs> Flatterer. Uh, yeah, really. 
<laughs> no, I'm happy to have you on another one of my shows. Uh, this time, folks, for you listening, Greg and I are reviewing the first appearance of Madame Xanadu, found in Doorway to Nightmare, Issue 1. But before we get to that, something I ask all of my new guests, Greg, what is your history or your experience with the horror genre of comics or film or literature? Well, with comics... I think my very first introduction of all things was the second Christmas with the Superheroes Treasury, which had, I think, a two- or three-page Christmas story from the House of Mystery. And I would have been, oh, maybe about five years old when I read that. Mm, Okay. And (laughs) I don't remember too much about it other than the fact that it was somewhere between a a Batman and a Wonder Woman story. I've not gone back to reread that. But uh, that's ground zero for it. And... I have to admit that I've gained an appreciation for the horror comics more in my later years because when you're only access to comics is the the spinner rack and and you only have a really limited budget when you're a kid, um, I would gravitate towards the superheroes before that. Uh, Every once in a while, one of the gold key uh, grim horror stories or ghost stories or so would end up in a pile that maybe a a relative would give me. But just as I, you know, got to that point where you know you reach that saturation point with superheroes, I ended up, you know, exploring different genres in DC and and Marvel. So in later years, you know, the Vertigo stuff I would read. I don't know if that's necessarily horror, but at least horror adjacent. I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways, Vertigo was a, a, a sort of uh, the descendant, maybe, of a lot of the the mystery and horror titles that DC was doing in the seventies. Uh, at least in tone. I mean, a lot of what Joe Orlando was editing during House of Mystery and Secrets and Ghosts like that. Uh, I mean, I mean, Swamp Thing obviously is the dr- sure. like, directly spun out of it, of course. But then, uh, yeah, I think Sandman and I mean, with the direct connection to Kane and Abel, for one thing. Um, uh, but at the very least, it, it definitely benefited from the code. What comics code? Right. I don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, they they got to play fast and loose with that a few times. So, yeah. so I was going to say with the, with the uh, comic book. I mean, I love horror movies, particularly the old Universal black and white monster movies. And but ultimately, a horror movie is going to scare me. I don't think I've ever really been scared by a uh, a comic book horror story. I mean, I appreciate it because with a movie, obviously you have the lights down, particularly in a movie theater. It, I think it works to that advantage with uh, you know a horror comic while you're eating lunch at work. It doesn't necessarily have the same effect, right? Actually, that's a good point that I, I might actually have to to think about that in a little bit more detail. Like, has have I read a comic that has legitimately spooked me or unnerved me or given me any kind of really sort of emotion? Like, I intellectually I like them and I like the idea of what they they come across, but I don't know if I had that visceral feeling. None of the the horror comics that I've read. And there's a caveat, and I'll get to that in a second. It's like the jump scares that you would see in a horror movie. You just don't have that when you, at least not for me, when you turn the page. You know, something with a, a, a werewolf story doesn't ha- necessarily have the same effect when you have a grit ad on the fu- on the facing page. Right. Now, the only comic that has caused me some a few sleepless nights were the UFO comics, which, once again, not exactly horror, but when you're six, seven years old, they're frightening as hell. <laughs> <laughs> particularly in that whole UFO craze right around um, the Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So yeah. that, that one did, you know, cause me maybe not scared, but, uh, you know, a few nervous tingles if I were 
to read them before my bedtime. Um, as I mentioned, folks, we are going to cover the first appearance of Madame Xanadu. So, a little overview of her publication history. Madame Xanadu was created by Michael Kaluta, the cover artist who did all five issues of the Doorway to Nightmare comic, with assistance from the editor Joe Orlando. The series was unique in that it was never supposed to have a consistent creative team. Instead, each issue would sport a writer and artist combo who had never worked together before, giving them a venue to tell weird mystery suspense tales. Where Madame Xanadu differed from the hosts of DC's other horror and mystery books such as Cain, Abel, The Three Witches, Madame Xanadu took an active role in the events of the story, though she was never supposed to be the story's protagonist. In this, she was a bit more like the Phantom Stranger. Doorway to Nightmare lasted five issues before being cancelled, I think, as a result of the DC implosion. But five more Doorway to Nightmare strips would appear in the next couple of years, four of them in issues of the Unexpected Anthology book, and the last one in the self-titled Madame Xanadu one-shot, which included a lead story by Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers who, as we know, have worked together in the past, as well as a non-Xanadu-related backup story by Brian Boland, which was his first or second work in the U.S. before Justice League of America 200. After that, Madame Xanadu appeared in issues of DC Special Series, DC Comics Presents, Blue Devil Annual, Wonder Woman, and Crisis on Infinite Earths. After the crisis, she was a regular in the Spectre series of both the 1980s and 90s. In the late 2000s, Matt Wagner and Amy Reeder started a Madame Xanadu series that lasted 29 issues. When the New 52 began in 2011, Xanadu was featured in Justice League Dark. Greg, were you familiar with this series, Doorway to Nightmare, or with the character of Madame Xanadu before? Yes, if only because of the iconic house ad that was the doorway to mystery that... I'm sorry, that's what I want to keep calling the series, Doorway to Mystery. Uh, Doorway to Nightmare, house ad that was in at least you know three or four DC comics that I'd read during that time. And while I never actually saw the comic on the stands, or and definitely didn't read this issue until really recently, that cover image, that house ad, is just what I think of first whenever I think of Madame Xanadu. Now, the first time that I ever you know, was introduced to the character, I figure it's one of three different things, and I'm excluding Crisis because I think that's ultimately it, mm-hmm. and that's the introduction to so many different new characters. Right. But it's either going to be my first – the first real comic story with her really featured in it was either the Blue Devil Annual or the first issue of the Post-Crisis Spectre series. It's I, I can't remember when which one I, I read first. Hmm. Yeah, I never read her series by Wagner and Reader, which I'm kind of surprised on that because I really like Matt Wagner. Uh, and I remember hearing that he was doing that series. And I was like, you know, I should probably check that out. But for some reason, I never got around to it. Uh, so I knew who she was around then, but it was probably I, my first time actually reading stuff with her. It was when the New 52 began, but it was either in Justice League Dark or at the same time as that, but not in that, uh, going back and reading back issues of the Spectre from either the 80s or the 90s. Those would have been around the same time, yeah. Yeah, the that second Spectre series is really when I got a regular dose of insanity in my comic reading. Okay, folks, we're going to take a short promo break. When we return, Greg and I are going to dare each other to see who walks first through the doorway to nightmare. Don't go away. Great comics come in all shapes and sizes. 
coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's Digest Cast, a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s. Hosted by the Fire and Water Podcast team of Robin Shag, and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests. It's Digest Cast, because big things come in small packages. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Doorway to Nightmare number one is cover dated January, February 1978, but the on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, was October 6th, 1977. The cover by Mike Kaluta shows Madame Xanadu in her chair holding a tarot card, specifically the death card. A text blurb at the bottom says, A New Experience in the Occult. And at the top of the comic, text runs into the title so that it reads, We Dare You to Enter the Doorway to Nightmare. What do you think of the cover, Greg? I think this is probably, as I mentioned earlier, probably the most iconic image of Madame Xanadu. And I love it. But at the same time, I wonder if it – I don't know if it's an effective cover for a comic book to – but at the same time, I mean with the horror comics, I think mood is probably more important than letting you know that Superman is going to fight Luthor. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think this, this cover does – convey the proper mood that there's something mysterious going on and it's definitely worth you know picking up you know after a recent episode of batman nightcast i mean chris frank and i we kind of talked about michael kaluta's covers and i like his work on some level i think kaluta and gray morrow have this portrait quality to their work. It's not like photorealistic. It's not an Alex Ross type of thing. But they draw in a way that doesn't feel like comic book art. It feels like portraits. Yes. And quite frankly, if you look at everything else that came out that month, this cover is the most distinctive thing, not only at DC, but I would, you know, everything in October of 1977. Mm -hmm. And that, for that very reason, you know, I do like it. But it doesn't tell you a whole lot. It doesn't. It's not like even the other horror comics of that month, you know, the cover kind of tells you what to expect in that story, in that comic. Um, whether or not it's – I think there's a, a Halloween house of mystery. Well, there's a Halloween story in there. But this, you know, you just don't know. And that's the reason why the title of the series is like Doorway to Nightmare. I don't know how Madame Xanadu holding that card <laughs> – corresponds with the title and it's the reason why i keep wanting to call it doorway to night uh, doorway to um mystery <laughs> mm-hmm. well even like in some of the ads and everything they they qualified this as not a horror comic but a mystery comic Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that, that does kind of make sense. Um, I, I am copying to this right now. I am reading this story from the Digest, Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love, which I imagine will be covered eventually on the Digest cast. Which um, is the where I read it the first time. I've bought this yeah. story twice, unknowingly, in like the three-month span. <laughs> I, I was going through some discount bins, and I found Doorway to Nightmare, and of course, there it was. What was in that house ad there for a buck? I'm going to buy it. And then um, I, I decided to buy some digests off of Amazon, and I saw the Dark Mansions for like three bucks. And I'm, <laughs> Yeah, and then when I read it, I was like, oh, this is it. Yeah, but in doing this, so, so I'm, I'm judging the cover based on scans that I see online through basically just an image search. The one thing I notice about it, and actually, I, I mean, I, I compare the scans of the cover that I see to the actual house ad. I'm not sure the coloring process did this cover the greatest favors. 
because if you get a chance to see this cover in black and white, like the original sketch by Kaluta, I think the black and white looks a lot better. I think the detail on the chair around her, like some of the weird sculpture like effect, like the woodwork, the, the monstrousness, I think that jumps a lot better in black and white. Just the detail, the fat, like the shading around her dress, like it's really just kind of washed out in black, but I think it looks a lot better uh, in, with the, the original sketch. So yeah, maybe I might post that on the uh, on the website when I actually uh, finish this episode. Because I think if you compare the color one to the black and white, I think the black and white looks a lot better. I would think so. I'm just looking at the the cover right now of, of the book, and you're right. The brown is so dark in that the chair that this is a beat up to hell copy. Right. But nevertheless, the details lost on that, um, and even you know her black dress blends right in with her hair, and yeah, it needs some adjustment on the color. I think. Yeah. yeah. Black and white would be. You know, I I've not seen the the black and white sketch of it, but I would imagine that it. It's definitely an improvement over this. (laughs) All right, then. Let us get into the story. Doorway to Nightmare is written by David Michelini, illustrated by Val Mayeric, which, by the way, fun fact, autocorrected to Maverick when I typed it. (laughs) Lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Liz Baruby, and edited by Joe Orlando. The storefront window says Madame Xanadu, advisor. The proprietor walks through her small curiosity shop, lighting incense and setting a stack of tarot cards on the table. Madame Xanadu has a thin, pale figure and raven black hair. For a moment, her almond eyes flicker over to a shelf full of mason jars. Within each jar, something odd that we can't quite tell. A jingling bell alerts Madame Xanadu to a woman entering the shop. Cindy Barnes walks in and immediately feels foolish for coming to a place like this for answers. She tries to leave, but Madame Xanadu convinces her to stay. Whatever instinct drove her to seek help was a good one. She sits Cindy down at the table and listens to her story. Originally hailing from Somerset, Kentucky, Cindy moved to New York to be an actress. She found a crappy little apartment and embarked on a seemingly endless stream of auditions. She finally landed the role in a Broadway play, but got fired for arguing with the director. Lucky for Cindy, though, the writer Brad Jacobs felt so guilty about her getting fired that he took her out to dinner. They started dating, and Brad got her a starring role in one of his other shows. The play was a hit, and so was Cindy. Everything seemed to be going well for her career and her relationship with Brad. That is, until things started to go not well. Madame Xanadu interrupts the story, sensing something disturbing outside her shop. She gets up and opens the front door. A red-haired, and thus sinister, woman named Erica stands in the doorway. Erica and Cindy have some history together, as Erica said she recognized her through the window and couldn't believe Cindy would get taken in by some occult mumbo-jumbo. She offers to take Cindy out to lunch. Cindy can barely contain her hostility toward the woman she calls a red-headed minx, and Madame Xanadu stares her down until Erica leaves. Cindy tells Madame Xanadu that Erica is the source of her trouble. She's the set decorator of Brad's play. They're old friends, but lately Brad has been spending more and more time with Erica and her group of freaky friends, as Cindy describes them. In addition to that, Brad has been acting weak and shaky of late, but when Cindy confronted him about it, he became belligerent. One night, Cindy followed Brad and Erica back to Erica's loft. Through the skylight window, Cindy witnessed Brad and Erica get freaky together as Erica's weirdo friends formed a circle around them and watched. And so Cindy has come to Madame Xanadu for help. Xanadu promises to do what she can, but it will take time to prepare. 
She advises Cindy to go home and wait for her to make contact. As soon as she leaves the shop, however, Cindy feels the impulse to confront Brad directly. She goes to his apartment and tells him she's leaving him. If he can't see Erica for the manipulative witch that she is, Cindy won't stay with him. Angrily, Brad tells her that Erica is dying of cancer, that medical science can't save her. But Erica turned to the metaphysical arts and discovered a cure through a process of soul transference. She borrows Brad's soul a little bit at a time to combat her sickness. There is only one more session, and then Erica will be completely cured. Cindy can't believe how ridiculous that sounds and storms out. Down on the street, hidden in shadows, Erica watches Cindy run home in the rain. An hour later, Madame Xanadu goes to Cindy's apartment. Before she can explain her plan, the steam from a kettle on the stove coalesces into the shape of a large red demon. As it lunges for Cindy, Madame Xanadu throws her cape over it and manages to capture the demon in a hand-sized crystal globe that she sets on Cindy's table, like a Christmas decoration. Madame Xanadu tells Cindy they must hurry if they're going to save Brad's life. They go to Erica's loft, but when they open the door, Cindy is aghast at what she sees. Brad and Erica are once again in the center of a circle of her weirdo friends, who are all shaved bald and wearing robes, by the way. Erica, however, is wearing something quite different. Golden bikini bottoms and pasties covering over her lady parts, like she's cosplaying as Dejah Thoris or something. On her head is a golden headpiece with a serpent. Brad, for his part, seems to be in a trance as a pyramid floats above him. Erica claims to be Erikotman, the daughter of ancient Egyptian king Tutankhamun. She says she got her cancer 4,000 years ago, but has stayed alive by siphoning the soul energy of people every 100 years, a process that kills the soul donor, naturally. Cindy tries to pull Brad away, but is stopped by the circle of Erica's followers. Cindy begs Madame Xanadu for help, but she says she cannot take direct action. She can only advise Cindy on what to do, and in this case, she advises taking out the pyramid floating above Brad, since that seems to be the focus of the energy transference that is killing Brad and sustaining Erica. Cindy picks up a lead pipe from the floor, because Erica has lead pipes just lying on the floor of her apartment. She throws it at the pyramid, which shatters. As the shards scatter about the room, they ignite, setting the whole room on fire. Erica's followers run for their lives. Cindy grabs a disoriented Brad and drags him out of the apartment. Erica tries to chase them, but Madame Xanadu cuts her off and holds her. With the soul transference incomplete, Eric Hotman's 4,000 years of existence catch up to her. She ages instantly and crumbles into dust as the fire rages all around. As New York firefighters try to put out the blazing fire, Cindy mourns the apparent death of Madame Xanadu. Brad says she gave her life so they could have a second chance at happiness, and Cindy kisses him. Three days later, Cindy and Brad return to the shop on Christie Street. They're amazed to see Madame Xanadu alive and well inside. They ask how she survived the fire, but Madame Xanadu quotes Hamlet and plays it coy. After the lovers leave, Madame Xanadu goes back to dusting the shelves of mason jars. In one particular jar is a lock of red hair. Erica's hair. Madame Xanadu smiles and goes about her business. The end. All right, Greg, what did you think of this story? For the most part, I like it. I do have some problems with it. Um, I mean, the story kind of starts off, you know, if you didn't know any better, if you're reading it just kind of cold without the cover or anything, you might think it was like a DC romance comic, which takes a really bizarre twist um, <laughs> once the cultists start to become involved. But, you know, it's it's 
I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, I'm not too crazy about how more than half of the the story takes place in flashbacks mm-hmm. rather than. I wonder if it's this was a, just a story that they had in a file that they just kind of repurposed a little bit to add Madame Zanadu. Quite possible. I mean, it's you're definitely right. Like it, this feels like something that would have been in for being the first story in a book called Doorway to Nightmare. You're right. That is a very over the top type of like you know uh, ambitious sounding title for your series. Um, and really, this seems like something that would have been in like a weird romance book. Like I, I think it's it's fitting that this is the third story in DC Blue Ribbon Digest number twenty, which is billed as Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love. Mm-hmm. This is a love story, and actually, a lot of the Doorway to Nightmare stories, a lot of the Madame Zandadu strips, have this kind of feeling. Like they they're not like the na- the same horror anthologies. They are more of that sort of mystery, you know, love thriller kind of romance stories. It is a weird story to have as your first hook story to have readers come back for the second one. Mm-hmm. As I said, I don't know why this is called Doorway to Nightmare. There's <laughs> there's no nightmare really to it. It's as I said, it's a competent story, but nothing remarkable, hmm. other than maybe the art. But that that's something completely different. Yeah, and I I mean, I, I liked the art throughout. And Val Mayeric, like, again, part of Joe Orlando, what he was trying to do was just pair people who hadn't really worked together. Like, Val Mayeric had hardly done any DC work at this point in his career. This is, this is his first assignment for DC. Yeah, okay, that's what I was like, like, most of his stuff was at Marvel for the, for the bulk of the 70s. And um, he only has four other DC credits at all, so... Yeah. But he had certainly played in this realm. Like, he had done, like, Frankenstein, he had done, like, other things kind Howard of... Howard the in, Duck. He, well, yeah, co-creator of Howard the Duck, I forgot, yeah. <laughs> um, but definitely played into the weird, played into the horror aspects of, uh, of uh, at Marvel. So, coming in here, like, I, I think the art, and again, I'm looking at it in a slightly reduced size on the digest, but I think the art looks pretty solid. I get I get enough of a sense that, uh, you know, Madame Xanadu is supposed to be beautiful, slightly exotic, definitely mysterious. Like, what's the name of the uh, the soap opera and Twin Peaks or whatever, like Invitation to Love or something? Like, <laughs> this feels like something that would have been on that. Like, there, there's a soap opera quality with just... This weird element of the supernatural that comes in at the end. Yeah, and then I guess just to make certain that everyone remembers that it's a a horror story, you have the steam demon come out, mm-hmm. which serves no purpose. Right. I had, to, I had, to, there are no other really supernatural moments in this story. What is the purpose of that steam demon? I, at one point, one time when I was reading it, I wondered if Madame Xanadu summoned it because. If Madame Xanadu doesn't come over, does that steam demon happen? And then that's what gets them to the final confrontation with Eric and her cultists. I don't know. She also just kind of leaves it there on the table. So is that is that just like a little <laughs> gift that Cindy gets to keep from now on? Merry Christmas, I guess. <laughs> yeah. They felt like they needed to have an action scene somewhere in the middle of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going through a few bits of the story, like the first page is just a, a splash of the storefront, which looks cool, and that we get some nice text, some you know nice prose that kind of describes what the place is like. It it sets the stage. Um, then on page two, we see Madame Xanadu kind of going about her store, kind of showing us the layer as it airs. And then page three, Cindy walks in, 
And by the third panel, like in their first interaction, Madame Xanadu has sussed out that she's here because of trouble with her boyfriend. Man, we didn't even get close to passing the Bechdel test on this one. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but then that- maybe, I was like, it might be redeemed when Erica shows up at the end, because then they're sort of fighting. There's three women in the scene, and even though the source of the conflict is a man, like at that moment, the tension is mostly between the three women. I'm like, maybe that kind of does it. Maybe that's... <laughs> If you were going to take the soul of someone's boyfriend, why would you go confront her about it I, at the store? If she doesn't show up at the store, does the rest of the story happen? Uh, I, I'm Cindy was already getting to that part of the story, so I'm assuming she would. The sense that I got was that Erica, whether she was walking by, whether she was following her, sensed something mysterious and supernatural about Madame Xanadu, that she knew Madame Xanadu was a threat. Uh, And I think that is why, when she sees Cindy leaving Brad's apartment that night, I think Erica sends the, the steam demon, whatever it is. And you're right, that is not explained. We have no idea how Erica gets that power or what that's from. But she sends that to kill Cindy to, or to get her out of the way or maybe to get Madame Xanadu out of the way. Because you're right, it doesn't attack until Madame Xanadu shows up there. Maybe Madame Xanadu was the target, but Erica couldn't attack her while she was in her shop. I don't know. I mean, there's, I could, I could come up with explanations for some of these questions based on tropes from other similar stories. Sure. Uh, but that that is me doing more work than I should have to do. Uh, yeah, exactly. so you, so you're right. The, I mean these are I'm hesitant to call them plot holes because I don't think they never really interrupted my understanding or enjoyment of the story. But as it happens when you're doing something for a podcast, you tend to scrutinize it a lot more. Oh yeah. Exactly. I kept wondering what was so special about Brad. <laughs> I mean, really, if she wanted to survive for another, what, 100 years or so, there are plenty of hobos in New York City. <laughs> no, it's got to be a playwright, damn it. Got to be a playwright. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I figured that Cindy saw her through the window and was trying to keep her away from Madame Zandu because she knew that was going to be a problem. Um but I didn't dislike the story. I, I thought it was fine. I thought it was a fun little kind of like, you know, it was a cute it's, little romance story. It's a nice disposable story, You're, yeah. which in 1977, they probably pretty much were. I mean, you read it and you were done. And I think this probably would have served better in an anthology mm-hmm. if they had been, if they'd been able to trim some of this. Because, I mean, it is it's – what is it, 18 pages? It's uh, a nice – maybe if it was like one story in a – I think House of Mystery was a dollar giant yes, at that it was point. At the time. It would fit in nicely in that type of book. Yeah. That, that, that format. Yeah, you're right. I, and I think it probably would have fared better in that because it would have had other stuff to lift up, but it also wouldn't have been like, like you get to this thing like, hmm, this, is, this isn't what I was expecting based on the title and the cover. Like, it, it feels like, again, like Doorway to Nightmare is such an ambitious sounding title. With Doorway to Nightmare, you don't expect to find the daughter of Tutankhamun. <laughs> Right. Which, by by the way, just like saying Eric Cartman fast, like her her Egyptian name, it's very easy to make that sound like Eric Cartman from South Park. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Nineteen seventy seven. We were in the middle of the King Tut phase mm-hmm. um, and and pyramid Ooh, power just, and the like. I just so, figured out what I'm going to use for my stinger at the yeah. end of this episode. <laughs> If it's what I think it is, that, that <laughs> song came out in 78. Oh, man. 
oh, I looked that up because it was – it seemed, why are we doing King Tut's daughter? <laughs> and I don't think she looks Egyptian either, at least not the way that she's drawn. Uh, no, but she is redheaded, so we can glean that I she's guess, evil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, even still, like – I mean, like, I, I did notice it, like, when I turned the page and when I saw her in her – Queen Deja Thoris type of like outfit or whatever. I was, and it, it did kind of like strike me that this is a sexual story. I mean, mm-hmm. we get like from page five when Cindy is going through her story, we see her in her two piece bikini on the beach with Brad. We see them making out after that, and she says, "You know, we were into the same things: swimming, spooky movies, backgammon, and uh, other things." It's like, yeah, they had. Interestingly enough, along those lines, you say you you've read this in the uh, the digest size. Mm-hmm. In the actual book, her outfit in her apartment is uh, colored differently. It's uh, white and more see through. Really, code approved. I'm gonna have to get that one then. <laughs> So yeah, um, but I'm, yeah, but also I mean like she follows Brad and Erica back to their apartment. She sneaks onto the roof or the apartment next door so that she can spy on them through the the skylight and doing something. Yeah, sees them having some sort of weird freaky, you know, surrounded by these like weird creepy it's like there's the the Egyptian thing, there's also like the the satanism kind of aspect that seems like her like her followers are kind of playing into that. There, there's a lot of crazy ideas in here, and I, I like all of the ideas. Are they put together the best? They could? It, it just, it feels like a small story for having big ideas. Particularly since it's done in one. I mean, mm-hmm. it is literally a done in one story with a completely new creative team coming in. Yeah. Unless there's some sort of editorial mandate that you're, you know, going to figure out why Madame Zendu is keeping trinkets of these various supernatural things that, you know. She's obviously dealt with other people with other problems and, you know, keeps whatever leftovers in a jar. Unless we're going to find that out. It's a weird setup that I don't know that actually gets – I don't know if it has any type of resolution. And I didn't even really think about this until now. Like as you were saying that, like it, I think it was Joe Orlando's idea like when he had Mike Kaluta develop this character. I think they just – they made Madame Xanadu too interesting to be the supporting player in the stories because by design, she's not supposed to be the active part. Like it's – you know, Cindy is the one who throws the pipe into the pyramid and like, like you know, saves her boyfriend, pulls him out. All Madame Xanadu does at the end to like contribute to Erica's death is just like stand in her way and bear witness to her kind of like melting and everything. It's it's incredibly passive, uh, her, well, she, her effort in the, in the end. She, she definitely believes in the, the- – the Watcher School of Non-Interference. <laughs> right, I, right. I'd like to help you, but, you know, there's a pipe over there. Yeah, exactly. Just hint, hint. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm nodding my head in that direction. Eyebrows, follow my eyes. I'd do it if I could, but, right. you know. But you're right. Like, as you're describing her, like, reading the story, I was like, I, okay, I could have gotten Cindy's story from any romance story. I want to know more about Madame Xander. I mean, that might be the one thing that made me want to pick up issue two after this came out is tell me more about these jars. Tell me more of these stories. Like, figure out... But also, like, who are you? Where do you come from? I'm not interested in your clients. I'm interested in you. And that might get me to buy the second issue, but if the second issue is just like this, which it sort of is, that might be frustrating. And that I think that would hurt the sales and hurt the book's ability to kind of, you know, find its audience and stick with it. I guess it just depends upon what DC editorial thought the hook was. Was the hook that this was just, you know, another mystery anthology series? Or are you reading it to learn something about Madame Xanadu? And 
obviously they went from what you've said and from what I gather from this, they feel like the story that is the, the hook, not necessarily the host. Yeah, and also like just the the creators, like it was just kind of like a weird experimental thing that Orlando is like, yeah, I'm not bringing in established creators, who, like creative teams to like work on this. We're not going to have a, a certain number. I'm just I'm going to pick a writer and an artist out of a hat that have never collaborated and see what they can do, see if it's any good. And it's like, well, okay, but what if it's not? I mean, it's just <laughs> we'll we'll sort of find out. Mayrick, that's how you pronounce mm-hmm. his name. I think so. Mayrick's, I think his art elevates the story. I think I, I think if you were the, definitely if you had the wrong artist on this, it definitely wouldn't be as good as it is. Yeah. Well, I, I do think for the first story out of the gate, they needed an artist with real chops. They needed to establish what Xanadu looks like, kind of like what her office, what her shop looks like, the realm. Um, he, he gave the characters a little bit of a sexiness without it being overly yeah. cheesecake. I mean, even though we they're, have a half-naked woman by the end of it. They're yeah. attractive without being glamorous, I think. Right. And I think particularly Brad looks like a person. They all look like mm-hmm. more or less people as yeah. opposed to overly stylized, and which is a nice change of place. The other thing is the clothing looks like clothing. I mean, <laughs> you don't realize how much you miss that until mm-hmm. you see you know, comics that where Bruce Wayne is always in his Batman suit. To see people dressed in clothing is a nice change of pace, particularly in a, a DC or Marvel comic. Yeah, yeah. This is a flawed story. There are definitely problems with it. It's, But I think the biggest problem is just ultimately it's just kind of okay. It's not necessarily the home run that you want a first issue to be. I like the art, but I like it for its... It feels like a very lived-in, realistic world. This is mm-hmm. not a hyper-expressive or stylized superhero world. But that's you can not... feel the grime. Yeah, you exactly. can feel the grime in in the hallways, in the streets, even in her building. I Absolutely, mean, and that works when... for the type of story that this is. But you can see, you can feel, or the fading yellow paint on the sign that's described in one of the text box boxes at the beginning of the the story. Yeah, it just yeah, it does have a nice lived-in feel and once again that's one of those things that i really appreciate about this story i would say the art gets an a and the story gets probably a c yeah and and that shakes out to uh, like overall if i'm grading this thing i would probably give it if i'm combining those two things it would be around a b maybe a b minus um it's it's okay i i like it uh i'm 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 glad we got a chance to review i do want to see more of her stories throughout the course of this podcast and just kind of explore like where this because there's a nice little deviation i like kind of getting into these weird creepy mystery romance stories i also want to get into weird war tales at some point down on this podcast just kind of explore other avenues and and see like where that we kind of take these little these little jumps but uh yeah, thank you very much for for being my guest on this one. Oh, sure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Anything that you want to plug? Any uh, you know projects or something that you want to mention? Oh, uh, not at this point. I mean, you can find me on Twitter. I'm mm-hmm. that's the best, always best place to find me. I'll be posting comic book ads left and right from time to time. I love those. Some of those they they fill me with such nostalgia, and some of them I look at and I'm like, where? What, why was that ever a thing? Like, what were you? Just... <laughs> I think that a lot. I mean, I won't lie. When I go through the discount bins, half the time when I look at what I pick up, it's like, oh, I bet there's some good ads in there. Yeah, <laughs> more than the actual comic. Anyway, Greg, thank you once again for being my guest on It's Midnight, the podcasting hour. Uh, I'll find a place, I'll find a way to get you back on the show sometime with a story that you do genuinely love. We'll, we'll find I, one that you really like. I, I like this one. It's, 
as, as I said, as, as these things go, it, it's a pretty standard you know DC mm-hmm. horror comic from the seventies. You're bound by that ever present comic code. <laughs> yeah, someday we'll beat that thing. Uh, one day. <laughs> All, right. All right, thanks, man. Thanks. All right, folks, we're going to take another promotional break, but when I come back, I will answer your listener feedback from some episode, probably the Easter one with the bunny trail. Guys, we finally developed our time machine. Should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built? Or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school? Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed. Yeah! Yeah. The Comic Book Time Machine. A journey back in time to explore comic books good and bad whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com all right time for some listener feedback and today i am responding to the fire and water network website comments from episode 11 you'll recall that was the easter episode when martin gray helped me review the short story hopping down the bunny trail from unexpected issue 202 that episode also began with an original short story submitted by our pal Dr. Ange from the Legion of Superbloggers and the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary. That story itself got a ton of well-deserved praise. It was very cool. So imagine with all of the comments that I read, there was an additional comment that talked about how awesome Ange is. And it's true. He is awesome. The story was great. Anyway, on to the comments about the bunny trail story. Again, these were the comments left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and I might be cherry-picking these comments a little bit. First comment came from Siskoid from the upcoming FW Team-Up and Kung Fu Friday podcasts, as well as several others here on the network. Siskoid said, This episode got me thinking about horror-y tales that feature rabbits, in addition to that bit in Holy Grail. Donnie Darko, Watership Down, The Internet provided a few others. Night of the Lepus, Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit, Banicula, the Vampire Rabbit, and in real life, the Swamp Rabbit that once attacked President Jimmy Carter. Nice. Uh, This led to a few follow-up comments from me, Dr. Ange, and Diablo Frank talking about Banicula and other stories like that. I remember reading those when I was a kid. Uh, moving on, Lucien Dessar said, My older brother, when he moved out of the house, gave me his huge stash of comics, and a lot of them were unexpected. This issue I remember the best from all of them, and at the time I was ten years old, and it freaked me out. One year as a teenager, I dressed up as this rabbit for Halloween, and no one understood what I was. Ever since that issue, I could never look at a chocolate bunny in the same way. <laughs> I, I can understand why. Oh, that's awesome, going as a killer rabbit Halloween costume. Chris Franklin from Supermates and Batman Nightcast called me and Martin Gray both sick bastards for the tale we told. He then said, I read the story from the gallery pages shortly before taking our daughter Danny to a town-sponsored Easter egg hunt. Needless to say, the story was on my mind. Wow. Kind of hard to believe DC got away with this. The Easter Bunny bites the kid's head off on panel. Only the chocolate coating covers the graphic horror of it all. Chris then went on to talk about Michael Uslan, the author of The Bunny Trail Story, and his producer credits on the Batman and Swamp Thing movies. Joe X chimed in that Uslan gained fame as the driver of DC's comic mobile in the 1970s, and Joe also provided a link to an article about the comic mobile written by Bob Rosakis. Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom said, Two great segments from Ange and Martin. These tales, really satisfied, made my hair stand on end. To which Clinton Robison replied, Careful, those rabbit puns tend to multiply if you aren't mindful. 
I I don't know if other podcasts draw this many puns from the listeners, but seriously, you guys? Rob Kelly from the Film and Water podcast and Pod Dylan said, While I think the cover is great, a real grabber, I'm even more impressed by the interior art by Tenny Henson. I'm not familiar with Henson's work, but it has a 70s children's book feel to it that really works well when contrasted with the horrific elements. The whole thing has a nastier tone to it than I generally think of when considering DC's late 70s, early 80s horror output, which to my money was always pretty tame. Thanks for highlighting this little gem. That's what the show is here for. Rob added, Martin's stories of walking through his town at night were creepy all on their own. Maybe he needs to write something himself and send it into the show. I would love to have it. I mean, it would make the opening segment so much easier on my part. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks said, This story would have terrified the ever-loving hell out of me if I'd read it as a kid. Not because of the specific imagery, but because, as you two noted... The kids did nothing to deserve this fate. They're not even particularly greedy in their pursuit of chocolate, and their mistakes in terms of being lured in weren't unreasonable ones. They thought they knew who the bunny was, so it wouldn't have set off a stranger danger alert. The idea of such a horrific fate happening to kids who didn't break some rule or engage in some obvious trespass that it brought on flies in the face of any sense of innate justice in the world, something that we're more likely to need a sense of when we're younger if our circumstances allow for such a view. This sort of thing taps into the same part of me that, for as long as I can remember, has hated babies being put in danger. The innocence and the helplessness chills me. The fact that this small being can only scream and cry, they are literally doing everything they themselves are physically capable of doing to prevent harm, and it doesn't matter. That has messed with my head and my sense of how the world is supposed to work my entire life. And while this story doesn't hit that quite as hard by the kids not being infants, it still touches the same nerve, or at least brushes just past it. You know, I've been on a Stephen King kick for the last few months, uh, and I do this every couple of years. I've just, you know, decided I want to start rereading some of these. Uh, but my favorite King book has always been It, and that certainly plays into the same theme of a terrible evil preying on innocent children just because of that primordial fear of kids being both pure and relatively defenseless. Um, speaking of that, never ever read Pet Cemetery when you're expecting your first child. Just throwing that out there. Uh, Diablo Frank of the Rolled Spine Podcast Network said, I'm kind of sick to friggin' death of throwing my hopes into the bottomless wishing well of suck that is the big two. Part of the reason this industry is a rotting corpse is fans whose loyalty to corporations prevent them from seeking out what they say they want from outside the mainstream. I don't want or need DC Comics to produce a horror anthology when such things exist but go largely unsupported from independent publishers. That said, short stories are a seemingly lost art form, and it's been a while since I've seen anything notable from anyone with name value. However, I bought Image Comics' OK Island for about a year, and continue to support Dark Horse Presents and Avatar Cinema Purgatorio every month. Of the anthologies I've read in recent years, the closest to fitting Ryan's request for something with a Bronze Age sci-fi horror vibe was Azurin Publishing's Indie Comics, which was admittedly more missed than hit, and seems to have died an early death, but had some nice pieces. Yeah, I remember when Dark Horse Presents came back a couple of years ago. I was excited for that, but it came at a time when I was rarely traveling to brick-and-mortar comic shops because of time and distance. I was getting everything on Comixology then, and Dark Horse didn't have a presence on Comixology for the longest time. So DHP was sort of unavailable. I mean, okay, obviously, I could have gotten it if I really put forth a little bit of effort, but meh, 
anyway, now, I don't know. I think even if one of the big two did make a horror anthology book, I'd be kind of meh. Uh, unless I was the editorial force behind it, naturally, like I will be in the future when I'm in charge. Wait, is that the wrong show? Yeah, okay, I'll come back to that one. Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey said, I read a survey last week that 66% of people bite the ears off first in a chocolate bunny, while 33% eat the bottom first. Luckily, the writer of this story chose the more popular way to eat a chocolate rabbit, else the story would have gotten really weird. All right, thanks for that one, Jimmy. Uh, and finally, Brian Linton left a comment over a month after the episode came out, and he apologized for his tardiness, but that turned out to be completely unnecessary because it took me two months to respond to these series of comments. Brian said, Regardless of my timing, I wanted to thank you for another great episode featuring a truly creepy tale. I have to wonder about what happened to all of the other children in the house. Were they simply allowed to leave unharmed, or did they each fall prey to the Easter Bunny's trapdoor as they attempted to leave? Perhaps we only witnessed one of many traps set throughout the house. Now that idea ups the horror factor for me by an order of magnitude. Yeah, interesting to think of. Before I go, a quick announcement and a plug for another show. Uh, As I have said on this show before, I had such grand designs for this podcast when it launched last Halloween, and it turns out those plans were overly ambitious for the amount of time and focus I could dedicate to it. The first victim was the planned Dead Man feature with Doug Zavisha, and now the Swamp Thing episodes with Ben Avery have officially been scuttled. Part of the problem where these two characters are concerned was my plan to cover them in order of publication, like an index show. But Swamp Thing and Dead Man deserve so much more than I could give. They deserve their own shows. And speaking of that, Ben Avery has recently launched his own Swamp Monster series, which is now part of his Comic Book Time Machine podcast feed, but it might eventually spin out onto its own thing later on. So check out episode 101 of Comic Book Time Machine, where he covers the story It from Supernatural Thrillers number 1. It's a great debut for his new series, Swamp Things. He's going to cover stories about Man-Thing, Swamp Thing, The Heap, and really any other kind of muck monster he can find. I've listened to the first installment. It's really, really good. These kinds of creatures are a passion of Ben's. I mean, that was the whole reason why I asked him to cover Swamp Thing with me. So, if you need the Swamp Monster fix, check out Comic Book Time Machine. As I said, for now, Swamp Things is a monthly fixture of that, but Ben might turn it into its own show later on. So what does that leave for this podcast, if I'm no longer covering Dead Man and I'm no longer covering Swamp Thing? I still want to wrap up my coverage of Night Force with Paul Hicks. We can do that in two, maybe three more episodes. I'm just not sure when those episodes will come out, because Paul's availability is going to be a little crazy for a time, and then my time is going to be nil for a little while. But that series will get covered eventually, I promise. After that, because I can't guarantee how regular midnight the podcasting hour will be, I think it's got to be an anthology, meaning most of the focus will be on the short stories from House of Mystery and others like that. But not only those. As Greg and I covered today, a done-in-one horror story like Doorway to Nightmare works, so expect Madame Xanadu to return. I want to finally, finally get to some of the Phantom Stranger comics that I have. I know a lot of people were hoping for Phantom Stranger when the show launched. That is coming, I promise you. And I also want to get back to those awesome Spectre stories by Fleischer and Apparel. In fact, I think the next episode of this show that you hear will probably be one of those Spectre stories. So, look forward to that. And that is the plan. Ideally. I mean, you know how well this show sticks to the plan. 
wrap up Night Force when I can while shifting over to the Spectre, the Phantom Stranger, Madame Xanadu, and a lot of wicked tales of the unexpected and the witching hour and ghosts. I get so much fun out of those short stories. That is awesome. But that's it for now. So thank you again for supporting the show. Thanks for liking and favoriting on social media. Thank you for leaving comments on the website. I haven't gotten a new iTunes review in a while, but hey, you know what? That's fine. It's not like I'm holding a grudge against a lot of you who haven't done that or like I'm plotting any sort of revenge. No, just sitting here hitting refresh every eight seconds. Still waiting. member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight the Podcasting Hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight the Podcasting Hour is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight. exhibits ever to tour the United States. Is the treasures of Tutankhamun or King Tut?
damage. Got a condo made of stoner.